Welcome to the Truth Wars Podcast with Dr. Olin Stubbs. Olin has recently written his first book, which is titled, What to Do with Worry, Why Playing God Never Works. You can find Olin's book on ChristianFocus.com and Amazon.com. Now, here's Olin. Lord, hear our prayers. Bless your word. To our hearing, our thinking, our understanding this morning. Lord, enrich us, enlighten us, make us wiser uh, in the process of sanctification for our own fight against sin and for holiness, and as we seek to help others. Pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, what we're going to look at today is kind of an addendum to all we've been talking about, but it's on blessings and threatenings. You know, there are all these places in the Bible where uh, even material blessings are promised to obedience. And there's all these places where there are all these kind of temporal threatenings from God according to our disobedience. And so we want to understand how is that supposed to work specifically in the New Testament? Because sometimes we kind of get confused about are those things still applying today and how does that work with saved by grace and not by works. Okay, so just by way of introduction, let's start in Psalm chapter 34, verse 11. Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. And the fear of the Lord is a very, very prominent concept in the Old Testament. And in one sense, fear of the Lord was a way to say genuine religion, right? You're not just going through the motions. You, choose, you truly have a real relationship with Yahweh. Okay? Verse 12, what man is there who desires life and loves many good days that he may see good? So you see the the promise of a blessing, a temporal blessing. You want a long life? You want a good life, a happy life? What should you do? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. Well, and if you do bad stuff, you'll get killed early. Right? I mean, that seems to be kind of the plain implication of that. Um, and listen, there are tons of passages like this. I'm, I'm in Deuteronomy right now, and kind of my read-through-the-Bible plan, and you come across all these. You, you obey me, you're going to get blessed. You disobey me, you're going to get hurt. I mean, it's like the Old Testament's filled with this. Flip over to Psalm 37 for just an, another example. Start in verse 8. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself. It tends only to evil. So anger, you know, worry seems like fairly small sins, but if you persevere in those, it will lead to worse sins. For the evildoers shall be cut off. They'll die. But for those who wait for the Lord, they shall inherit the land. You're going to get land. You're going to get prosperity. You're going to get blessing if you're patient and you Wait for the Lord and you let him fight your battles and you don't try to sinfully fight them on your own terms. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more, though you will look carefully at his place, but he will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. Okay, so you see, there's clearly, you disobey, you're going to get hurt, you're going to get killed. Um, If you obey, you're going to get blessed. You're going to get land, prosperity, peace, abundance. Now, Flip to the New Testament, Matthew chapter 5, and here's what we're going to do. We're going to look at three of the most famous, maybe the three most famous preachers in the whole New Testament, Jesus, Peter, and Paul, what they have to say about this. How how does this concept carry over in the New Testament? So first, let's think about the idea of blessings. How do blessings work in the New Testament? Well, Jesus' first and maybe most famous sermon, Matthew chapter 5, verse 5. 
Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now, does that, does that sound like anything to you? I mean, it's, it's a quote of, of Psalm 37, verse 11 that we just read. Um, so, he's saying these promises still apply in the New Testament. Now, the reality is these promises in the Old Testament did not apply 100% exactly all the time. A righteous person could die early. An evil person could live a long life. I mean, what did God say about Job in the very beginning of the book? You don't have to quote it. You know, basically, what did, what did God say about Job in the very beginning of... When he's talking to Satan about Job, what did he have to say about Job? He basically said, he's the most righteous guy on planet Earth. That's my paraphrase. He's the best. And then what proceeded to happen to Job? Terrible suffering, terrible loss, terrible pain, terrible sickness, terrible confusion. And Job is in the Old Testament in one sense to say, here's the way life normally works, but it doesn't always work that way, right? Because planet Earth is a battleground. So it doesn't always just work nice and easy. Now, Wayne Grudem said this, the blessings of the New Testament are more genuinely, are more generally spiritual, psychological, and interpersonal, and less material and physical. R.T. France essentially agrees with that. William Henderson said this, you may only have a few earthly goods, but with God's blessing, that's better than many earthly goods without his blessing. Now, just think about it. If you were teaching Matthew chapter 5, verse 5 to the youth group this week, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. You wouldn't say, listen, if you're meek, if you're humble, if you're gentle, that guarantees you you're going to get a long life. Because we all know exceptions to that rule. But what we might say is, you're going to inherit the earth. Well, how would you interpret that? How would you imply that? probably in a very spiritualized way that, well, you might die young, but if you're in Christ, you go to heaven, and then when Christ comes back and creates the new heavens and the new earth, you'll have the whole earth forever, which is true, which is accurate. But it also helps us understand the Old Testament, that when the Old Testament said, hey, if you'll live a godly life, you'll inherit the earth, they probably interpreted that in a very wooden, literal, if I live a godly life, I get to have earth for maybe 120 years in abundant prosperity. Sometimes that proved true, but the reality was even if they died a young, hard death, they're in Christ, they're going to come back, they're going to inherit the earth forever and ever. Does that make sense? Okay. So the, the earthly blessings in the Old Testament really pointed to more spiritual blessings. But I want you to see this. The spiritual blessings aren't disconnected from the earthly blessings. Do you see that? I mean, the whole you'll inherit the earth is literally true. We're going to get the whole world one day. The new heavens and the new earth is going to belong to us. We're going to be there. We're going to rule and we're going to reign with the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, some, you know, legalists and antinomians both botch this. It's obvious how the legalists botch it because they try to say, yes, obedience always equals blessing. Disobedience always equals pain. And number one, life doesn't work that way. And they put far too much of their motivation and energy into that. But a lot of times antinomians can blow it too because they're so scared of sounding like a legalist 
they come to these promises and they're kind of, uh, the only reason you should obey Jesus is because you love Jesus. There should never be any other motives in your life. Well, that sounds super spiritual, but it's like, but that's not what Jesus said. I mean, right here, Jesus uses the motivation. Hey, guys, one of the reasons you should be meek is because I'm making you a promise. If you're meek, you get the earth. So here's just a good life principle for us all. Never try to be more spiritual than Jesus. Right? Anytime you're, you think you're more gospel-centered than the Bible, you've got a problem. There was this, we had a guy that used to come and do staff training with us from RTS. And one year he was coming, and um, I, like the last day he was going to have to leave early. So he said, listen, I got this young guy, I'm training him up, but he's, he's pretty gifted. I'd like to bring him, and I'll do most of the training, but then i got to leave and let him do the last day. It's like, great. And we were going through the pastoral epistles. And so the, the main RTS guy, you know, he teaches through 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy. It's awesome. And the last day he has to leave, and he turns it over to his kind of budding assistant that he's to teach Titus. And the poor guy gets up there. And he's like, you know, I got to be honest. I really, I didn't, I didn't want to teach the book of Titus. I don't like the book of Titus. The book of Titus doesn't seem grace-centered enough for me. And I appreciated his honesty, but it's like, if you think Titus doesn't seem grace-centered enough, where's the problem? Is it with Titus or is it with you? Right? You got to change. You got to conform. Right? We we can't have these concepts in our mind, gospel-centered. Christ-centered, whatever you want to call it, that trump the Bible. It's always got to be interpreted by the Bible. Make sense? Okay. Um, Okay. Uh, Here's John Calvin. For because the eye of our mind is too blind to be moved solely by the beauty of good... Our most merciful Father, out of His great kindness, has willed to attract us to the sweetness of rewards to those who love and seek Him. Do you understand what he's saying? If we were perfectly mature, we ought to be motivated all the time by Christ is worthy. But none of us are perfectly mature. And so God is such a good God that He graciously gives us extra motivations. Look at all the ways I'll bless you if you obey. Here's John Calvin again. The promises are annexed to the commandments and are intended to excite our hopes and to impart a greater cheerfulness to our obedience. Paul uses this kind of seasoning, I love that, to render the submission more pleasant and agreeable. He's speaking about Ephesians chapter 6, verses 2 and 3 there, okay, which we're going to look at in a minute. It's like this. When you have little kids and you're like, you got to eat broccoli. You want to be strong like Papa? You want to be healthy? You got to eat broccoli. I hate broccoli. It tastes terrible. Well, what if I put a pound of cheddar cheese on it, right? It's like, okay, I'll eat the broccoli. What do you do? You're a good parent. You're not a bad parent. You're, you're trying to bend low to your child's weakness and say, let me offer you some extra motivation. Think about grandparents that love their grandchildren and they love to spend time with their grandkids. And they want their grandkids to come to their house and hang out. But they realize the older my grandkids get, the less they like hanging out with me. So they start to say, if you come to Grandma and Granddad's house, we'll give you lots of gifts. And the kids say, okay, now we'll go to Grandma and Granddad's house. Now, that's not purely mercenary. There is something in the heart of the grandparent that loves the grandchild so much, they delight to give them gifts. But there's also kind of this motivation of, I just want to spend time with my grandchild. And if i got to give him some gifts to get him to do it, I'll be willing to do it. Does that make sense? Okay. And I think you see the same pattern biblically. God offers us all these extra motivations to holiness. 
Now, there's a lot of good rewards, blessings, okay? And listen, I do think this. When you're teaching, if you find something like this, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth, you shouldn't feel bad about trying to motivate people. You ought to be meek. Why? Because you'll inherit the earth. Because God will bless you if you do. But never let the temporal blessings be the main motivator, right? The spiritual blessing, the love of Christ, the love for Christ, the love from Christ, that's got to always be the main motivator. But it's not sinful to use secondary motivators. Now let's go over to Ephesians 6 and look at the passage I was just referring, or Calvin was just commenting on. This is Paul, um, Ephesians chapter 6, start in verse 1. Pretty famous verses. I literally think this is the first passage I ever memorized because my parents used to quote it to me when they spanked me. And there were lots of spankings, so there were lots of repetitions of this verse. Ephesians chapter 6, 1 through 3. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now, What's he quoting from in Ephesians 6? It's the fifth commandment. Yes, it's the Ten Commandments, okay? Fifth commandment. And just like it had a promise back then that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land, Paul has no problem bringing that commandment, that promise even, into the New Testament. Now, does that bother any of us? I mean, at first glance, because, wait a second. But all kids, all good kids don't always get blessed. Some really good, obedient kids get leukemia and die at age 12. Right? And then there's some really wicked, rebellious, evil kids that may live into their 80s. They may finish them out in prison, but they're still alive. So again, you, you've got to think of these almost like proverbs. They're genuine, genuine, uh, General truisms, they're maxims. They're not exact laws. In general, a child that learns to respect and honor his parents will also learn to respect and honor all authority. Will probably, hopefully, learn how to respect and honor God. And therefore, he'll obey God's commands in life. And life will probably go better for him. Whereas a child that never learns to honor and respect his parents doesn't learn to honor and respect other authorities. And he tends to be the kind of kid that when the cop comes up and says, let me see your hand, says, you know, screw off, and he gets shot. And it's terrible. It's tragic. But it's like, what if there had been a little bit more honor and respect? You understand what I mean by that? There are natural consequences to our actions and our decisions. Warren Wiersbe said, sin always robs you. Obedience always enriches you. John MacArthur, this extends to believers today, though the blessings may not be tangible. Calvin again, Paul pricks us out of our apathy with this needle. While the Lord promises the blessing, at the same time he implies that an inevitable curse threatens all stubborn and disobedient children. When you have kids one day, be serious about teaching them obedience. Um... When you read Calvin, he uses this kind of language all the time. That God is spurring us on. That God is goading us. Out of love. Because he realized how sluggish we are. He has this term I love. He calls people sometimes slow bellies. 
You know, it's just this great mental picture of people that are just fat and lazy. And it's like God uses blessings and threatenings to spur us on in obedience. Okay, here's Matthew Henry. Obedient children are often rewarded with outward prosperity. Not indeed that it is always so. There are instances of such children who meet with much affliction in this life. But ordinarily, obedience is thus rewarded. And where it is not, this is key, it is made up with something better. Just pause there, right? So let's say you're teaching this in the youth group, and one of your kids comes up and says, I'm trying to obey. I feel like I am the good kid. My life's going terrible. What you have to say to them is, you got to have eyes to f- of faith that trust that God is going to bless you so much in the long run that it's going to make this suffering pale in comparison. I mean, isn't that what Romans chapter 8, verse 17 means? Right? We're going to suffer, but our sufferings are not even worth being compared with the glory that is yet to be revealed in us. You may not get it to the next life, but you got to trust Him. you got to live by faith. So, still Matthew Henry. Observe, the gospel has its temporal promises as well as spiritual ones. Although the authority of God be sufficient to engage us in our duty, yet we are allowed to have respect to the promised reward. You hear what he's saying there? He's saying, listen, the fact that God says, do this, ought to be enough. Obey me, ought to be enough. But he says, because a lot of times, just practically speaking, it's not enough to motivate us functionally, God gives extra. Though it contains some temporal advantage, even this may be considered as a motive and encouragement to our obedience. Now, let me try to get, make this real practical. You know, and you don't have to raise your hand on this one. But maybe have you ever been in a situation? Maybe you're traveling on the road, you're all by yourself, you're alone in a hotel room, and you realize this TV has got access to all kinds of you know, evil stuff on TV that I can watch and nobody will ever know. And for whatever reason, I'm having a hard month or whatever, I I am uber tempted. And maybe you're trying to pray and wrestle in your heart. Oh, God, I love you. You love me. I don't want to do this. But it's like that doesn't feel like it's cooling down your emotions at all in the direction you're headed. And then you start to think things like, man, God hates sin. And and God threatens some pretty terrible things, some pretty terrible consequences in the word to sin. And sometimes that can almost be like the loving slap across your face to say, wait, this is not worth it. This is not worth it. You know, one of the Beatitudes, the pure in heart will see God. God, I want to be pure because I want to experience more intimacy with you. And you start using the rewards and the, and the threatenings as secondary motivations to build up kind of the fortress of your heart so that you stay pure and fight sin. Does that make sense? That's a wise believer. That's not a legalistic believer. That's a godly wise person. Here's the Westminster Confession of Faith. The blessings they may expect to follow such obedience. These blessings do not accrue to them as their due. Right? That's, that's what we talked about last week. You can never think, I deserve the blessing, I earned the blessing. It's still a gift. These blessings do not accrue to them as their due from the law considered as a covenant of works. So it follows that a person cannot be said to be under law rather than under grace merely because he is motivated by obedience to obedience by the law's promises or refrains from evil out of regard to its threatenings. Guys, this is key. This is Westminster Confession 19.6. Write this one down because I guarantee you, you stay in the PCA, at some point you're going to run across somebody that's going to say something like, well, if you're motivated by temporal blessings, you're a legalist. Well, if you're motivated by temporal threatenings, you're a legalist. 
And it's like, well, all the Westminster divines disagree with you, right? I'll read it again. So it follows that a person cannot be said to be under law rather than under grace merely because he is motivated to obedience by the law's promises or refrains from evil out of regards for its threatenings. Okay? There's Westminster Confession again. Okay? When Christians say they incur God's displeasure and grieve the Holy Spirit, they lose some measure of their graces and comforts and have their hearts hardened and their consciences wounded, hurt and offended others and bring temporal judgments on themselves. There's a right way for a real Christian to say, I've sinned and because I've sinned, God feels far from me. I don't feel close to God. I don't feel... In my... Now, if they say, God doesn't love me any wrong anymore, that's legalism. That's a lie, right? But just to say, I feel like God has withdrawn from me. Ephesians 4, Paul says, you can grieve the Holy Spirit. You ever grieved your wife, your girlfriend, your best friend, your parents? They're still there. They don't leave you. They don't disown you. But there's a coldness. There's a distance in the relationship. And guys, that ought to be the main threatening that motivates us. I'm so in love with the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't want there to be any coldness or distance in the relationship. I want warm affection at all times. Now, the problem is, even when things are great, we don't always feel close to God, right? And we've got to live by faith even when we don't feel it. But I don't know about you, I like the feelings, right? It's better when I feel close to God, when I feel passionate for Him, when I feel loved by Him. I'd rather be living there than i got zero feelings and I'm always having to live by faith. Sometimes you have to do that, but that's not the ideal. Another commentator said this, The use of threat and reward to encourage a proper response to God's law is not legalism, nor is such motivation inherently sub-Christian. Okay. So, there's a place for blessings, there's a place for threatenings. And then, let's think about this idea of, of inheriting, inheriting something. Flip over to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3 and skip down to 8. 1 Peter chapter 3 verse 8. And as I read this, see if you can notice what he is quoting here. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless for, for to you for to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts regard Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good if... That should be God's will than for doing evil. Now, in the middle of that passage, what's he quoting? Psalm 34. Yeah, the psalm we looked at at the beginning. Again, it's not like, well, that was in the Old Testament. It doesn't work that way anymore. He pulls it forward to now. But notice what he does. He says, even when you're doing everything right, you still might suffer in this life, right? 
because this life is broken. There's people that hate Christians. There's governments that want to persecute Christians. But he gives a great argument. If you have to suffer in this life, and the bottom line answer is all of us will have to suffer to some degree at some point, right? And he makes this very rational argument. Would you rather suffer because you did something sinful and in the midst of that suffering you have to feel like God my Father is disciplining me right now? Or would you rather suffer because you did something righteous and the world hates you and is attacking you, but in the midst of that, you can have a sense of, my Father's pleased and honored. That's a much better way to suffer, is it not? And that's kind of the reason he's using to say, persevere in holiness, so that when you do suffer, because suffering will come, you don't have to wrestle with a guilty conscience. And again, don't worry, we're not going to have share time. But have any of y'all ever been going through some suffering? And maybe you have recently had some big, bad, ugly, dark sin in your life, and you're kind of like, is this a result of my sin? Is this like some discipline that I have incurred because I made some really stupid, selfish choices? That's a bad way to suffer to have to be wrestling with that. And there's other times where things are going terrible, and you're like, Lord, if you're disciplining me for something, please show me. But as best I know, I'm not sinlessly perfect, but I've really been trying to walk close with you And so if this is just what you're calling me to, give me the grace to persevere. It's easier to suffer when you feel right with the Lord and close with him. Does that make sense? Okay. Um, Okay. Matthew Henry. It's lawful to consider temporal advantages as motives and encouragements to religion. John MacArthur. Obey for the Lord's sake. He has graciously added the promise of special blessing for those who obey. Here's uh, Thomas Boston, Boston, one of the Puritans. Since sin dwells in him while in this world, the promises of fatherly smiles and threatenings of fatherly chastisements are still necessary. Being influenced to obedience by the promises and threatenings of the law of Christ is not indeed slavish, Yet it is plainly childish. You remember uh, C.S. Lewis has this great quote where he talks about having duty as a motivation is like a crutch. And his point is duty is not a bad motivation. It's a good motivation. It's just not the best motivation. The best motivation would just be I love God. I want to serve him all the time. But you've got to be honest with yourself. If you wake up one day and you're like, I don't feel anything, do your duty anyway. Okay? I don't know if I've shared this in here before, but I'll, I'll share it because it, it's been powerful in my life. So when John Piper kind of was first becoming famous, you know, because um, uh, Desiring God, you know, his famous, his famous book on the 10th anniversary, 1996, it kind of took off. Everybody's reading it. And here, here I, I was a student at Sanford, and I remember that. Everybody's reading it. Everybody's talking about it. It's seeming that way. And what some people were doing, I had, I had friends that fell into this. This is the way they interpreted Piper's book. I'm supposed to obey God because I delight in God. So if I don't delight in God, don't obey. So if I wake up one morning and I don't feel close to God, don't spend time because that would be hypocrisy. So Piper came to speak at a Beeson Divinity School in the chapel, and somebody essentially asked him that question. And he gave a great answer. He said, let's say you're riding down the road. Have I, have I shared this with you all before? Okay. I don't know. Hey, you're riding down the road, and you see a hitchhiker, you know, or a car broken down and you just know the Holy Spirit is saying pull over and help this person but everything in you is saying I don't want to pull over and help this person what do you do okay now 
this is why Piper is, is so gold. Because I think the legalists would say, of course you pull over and help the person. It's your duty. Shut up. Do your duty. I think the antinomian would say, well, you know, if you don't feel it, you don't want to be a hypocrite, so just drive by and wave, right? Piper says, here's what you do. You pull over. You help the person. But the whole time you're helping them, you need to be praying in the back of your heart, begging God to forgive you for your bad attitude and begging God to change you so that you would love him so much you'd start to love people more. Because that, that ought to be the way we move forward. I'm going to obey. I'm going to do my duty even when I don't feel like it. But I'm not going to be content for my feelings to be out of line with the truth. I'm going to beg God, forgive me, change me, make my feelings grow up and mature so I love the things that you love and hate the things you hate. But in the meantime, well, I'm still kind of a mess, even like Paul the Apostle was in Romans chapter 7. And sometimes I love sinful stuff, and sometimes I hate godly stuff. God, help me be faithful in the meantime. And sometimes what I need is I need the extra motivation of your blessings, of your promises, of your threatenings to get me there. Okay. Um, now, like I said, legalists tend to treat all the blessings and threats on the basis of earning. The antinomians want to just ignore them and pretend they're not there, right? I mean, they're almost like Thomas Jefferson that went through the New Testament and cut out all the miracles. The antinomians, they don't literally do that, but they just kind of, they tend to always skip those passages. You know, they don't want to teach wherever there's any kind of blessing or reward or threatening. Okay. Um, now, there, there are some types that I would call the light antinomians that they basically do obey, but if you ever try to press them about, well, do the blessings or threatenings ever come into your thought process? No, 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 I, I never even think about those. And again, maybe they're trying to be super spiritual, but once again, I'd say don't try to be more spiritual than the Bible. If, if God in his fatherly wisdom offers us up a New Testament full of these blessings and threatenings, the wisest thing we can do is say, that's like a vitamin to help me, and I'm going to take it. Thomas Balson again, the freeness of their obedience will always bear proportion to the measure of their faith, which is never perfect in this life. Okay, so secondary motivation should not be despised, but rather loved. Just because something is not best doesn't mean it's evil. Just because something is merely temporal doesn't mean it's not good in the moment. So there's, if you want to study more of this, there's a great book um, by a guy named Samuel Bolton. It's called The True Bounds of Christian Freedom. It's this great old Puritan book, but, it's, but it gets deep into this. And one of the things that he does in that book is he makes the distinction between primary motives that serve as the spring to the action and then secondary motives that serve as the oil to keep the wheels turning after they're already moving. I think I've mentioned that before in here. So... Listen to what he has to say. Some secondary motivations are, such as these are given to us to help us, especially when our faith is lowest and trials and temptations run highest. God gives us these in order to help faith against sense, to furnish faith with arguments against the carnal reasonings of the flesh, and to strengthen us in the greatest straits and distresses the world can bring upon us. And then he uses Moses as an example of future rewards. Do you remember what it says about Moses in Hebrews 11? Um, the, the, uh, the faith chapter, part of what it says is, part of the way he was able to say no to all the gold and glitter of Pharaoh and the palace that he lived in is he was thinking about the future city he would inherit. Now, listen to Bolton talking about 
Moses. Why did God make him think that way about rewards? To cheer him in his way. To give him encouragement. Lest he should think of the great things he had refused. And lest the flesh should begin to tell him that he had made a hard bargain. But this he renews, by this he renews his strength and gets new and fresh encouragement to continue his journey. He does not make this a reason why he undertakes the journey. There's the kind of key phrase. Why did Moses leave the palace of Pharaoh to go serve God? Ultimately, because God told him to, and he feared God. That's why he started the journey. But along the journey, when it got hard, right, when all of Israel was grumbling against him and persecuting him and saying, you're a bad leader and we hate you, at times what he would meditate on is, I'm going to inherit a better city, an eternal city. And that doesn't strike against your love with Christ because God wants you to think about his blessings in accord with his character. So, one last verse and we're done. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. There's the ultimate motivation. The Lord Jesus loved us at great loss to himself. Why? to get us to God I want God I want to know God I want to love God I want to see God I want to enjoy God I want to experience God I want to please God I want to honor God because of all he's done to me now um, the greatest motive must always remain Christ's love for me right Christ chose me Christ died for me Tim Keller has this this, uh, place maybe it's in his suffering book I'm not sure and it's one of those things when you first read it, you're like, ah, I think that's too extreme. But then you really think about the implications, and I think he's absolutely right. I've, I think I've heard Pastor Reader quote him on this. There's on, there is nothing that a non-Christian can suffer in this world that a Christian can't also suffer. There's, there's only one promising guarantee of something that a Christian will never suffer that it doesn't apply to a non-Christian. And that's the ultimate wrath of God. That's hell. Every other hardship and pain and suffering and doubt and fear and whatever temptation that a non-Christian can go through in this life, a Christian might go through it too. But our only hope is Christ took the wounds of God's wrath that I deserve. And so no matter how bad, how hard, how painful, how dark it gets on this planet, I know that in the next life I'm secure. I will inherit the land. I'll get all the blessings. I may have to wait for the next 80 years, but they're all coming to me. Edward Fisher said this. I love this. He said, God and Christ will never unsun you. Right? He'll never unadopt you. You're always in. So let me pray. Lord Jesus, we love you so much. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your life. Thank you for your wisdom. Help us trust you more. Trust all of your work. We do want to be motivated mainly, primarily, solely by your love for us and our love in return to you. But Lord, we are wise enough and humble enough to know that we're not going to be perfect in this lifetime. That indwelling sin is too strong. And we need all the extra help we can get to put it to death. So let us be wise people who will use all the blessings, all the threatenings in an appropriate way to continue to motivate our obedience. We pray all this in Christ's name.
Thanks for listening to this episode of Truth Wars with Dr. Olin Stubbs. We want to remind you to please leave a review for this podcast wherever you listen and to share this podcast with any friends or family that you think may be blessed by Olin's teaching.